Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Welcome to the Elk Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man Staten. This podcast is dedicated to blue-collar, hard-working public land elk hunters. We preach hard work, delayed gratification, discipline, and staying accountable to yourself. We value faith, family, fitness, fiscal discipline, and of course, public land elk hunting. So come along as we try to educate, motivate, and inspire you to become the best possible version of yourself. Our podcast is brought to you by Wilderness Athlete, performance you deserve. Fuel your body with the best. Use our discount code ELKSHAPE30 and save 30% off your first purchase. We are also brought to you by NUMA Outdoors. Geared for the outdoors, made with bow hunters in mind, built to over-deliver, and most importantly, designed to outperform. Check out numaoutdoors.com and be sure to use the discount code ELKSHAPE20 to save 20% off your purchase. Matthews Archery elevating the archery experience take a test drive with the matthews v331 or 27 at a local dealer near you vortex optics i've been partnered with vortex since 2010 this company is awesome they're american owned veteran owned they're based in wisconsin their entire team of designers and engineers produce and distribute a complete line of premium sport optics accessories and apparel most of the apparel that i wear while training scouting and hanging out around the house is vortex wear go ahead and check it out and if you want to save 20 percent, enter the discount code elk shape at checkout and you'll save 20 percent. new from vortex in 2021 is their tripods the one i've been using in the backcountry is their summit carbon tube and their radiant carbon and it also has a ball leveling head and it's perfect for rock solid shooting there is a tripod to fit everyone's needs from Vortex now, and it's still covered with their lifetime no-fault transferable VIP warranty. Check it out at vortexoptics.com.
Welcome to the Oak Shape Podcast with me, Dan the Fitness Man. What's up, everybody? Today is part two of our three-part series. We are discussing the privatization of elk, specifically elk hunting, specifically this uh, murky waters of landowners, guides, regular hunters, kind of all coming to the table and figuring out what the heck is going on with tag allocation. Uh, distribution of elk tags to landowners because elk live on their land or come through their land. Distribution of elk tags or set-asides for, for outfitters. If you hire an outfitter, you can guarantee yourself a tag in many instances, or you can get a leg up on everyone else because you are hiring an outfitter. Uh, and then you have just uh, the tag situation for general tags, draw tags, things like that. So I'm not an expert on this stuff. We're bringing in two guys that know quite a bit about this stuff and they both are uh, working for New Mexico Wildlife Federation which was established by Aldo Leopold if you've ever heard of him so these guys are legit they have an awesome nonprofit that they uh, basically put a lot of work energy effort into and we're gonna pick their brains on this topic again this is part two just to tease ahead the third part we will go to the state of Montana and talk to some folks over there and kind of see what's going on in their neck of the woods and how there's some definite similarities going on between the two states. And uh, I'm just going to leverage this platform to get you guys thinking about this stuff. And if you can listen through this podcast, it should help you be more educated and possibly give you some resources in the show notes to do your own research and form your own opinion on the matter. So without further ado, we are talking to two guys, two studs, from the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. Here we go. Hey, what's going on there, Dan? Jesse Dubell here. How are you, Jesse? I'm doing fantastic. I'm ready to dive in, brother. Uh, so you guys are New Mexico uh, Wildlife Federation or Foundation? Uh, federation. New okay. Mexico Wildlife Federation, yeah. What do you do for that federation? I'm the executive director. Uh, so basically, my job is to uh, ensure that the organization is following our mission statement, ensure that we have adequate resources and funding to stay properly staffed, promote all of our programs, um, you know, essentially just run the outfit and make sure we're doing our jobs. Okay, that sounds good. Now, how many board members do you guys have? Oh, I think at the moment, I think I've got seven board members. I might have to double check to be sure. Uh, oh, my bylaws good. would allow me to have up to 13, but I, I think I try to have nine, but I've got two vacancies right now. So I think I'm at seven currently. Okay. How did you guys become an entity? Why and how? We were founded in 1914 by Aldo Leopold. So we're one of the oldest sports persons organizations uh, in the country, actually. But we're the largest in New Mexico. We have a little over 83,000 um, we call them members, you could call them followers because we have a free membership model. So anybody who signs up can become a member. It doesn't require an annual fee. So I get a lot of criticism from people saying, Hey, you're claiming you have this huge membership number, but that's because you don't charge for it. And you know, whatever. But anyway, we have about 83,000 people in our database who we send our monthly newsletters to and so on and so forth. But when the New Mexico Wildlife Federation was founded, 
by Aldo Leopold. It was originally called the New Mexico Game Protective Association. And then a few years after its founding, uh, the board at that time decided that it was important to conserve all species of wildlife and not just those that we hunt and fish for. And so it became uh, apparent that the organization should change its name to the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. Uh, important to note that we are an affiliate of the National Wildlife Federation, which was founded in 1936. Um, but we are an autonomous organization, a completely separate 501c3. Okay, is this your is this your full time gig, or do you have a, a, another life outside of this? No, this is my full time gig. I my, I've made my career interestingly as a as a custom home builder and kind of residential real estate developer, and so. Going from that into conservation seemed curious to many folks. You like go from building houses and destroying wildlife habitat to committing to conserve wild spaces. But um, now this is a full-time gig. Uh, we've got eight employees, you know, full-time. We, we, we work around the clock and uh, Ray Trejo should be joining us any minute now is our Southern Activities Coordinator. Uh, most of our staff are certified hunters education instructors. We do a lot of in the field programming and uh, introducing people to hunting and fishing, various R3 programs, all that kind of stuff. Awesome. Well, we uh, Ray just joined us. Let me see if he can hear us. Ray, are you there? Yeah, man. Um, give me a second, let me start this video. Are you guys good? Yeah, we're rolling right in. So thanks. Ray just joined us. Ray, good time to go ahead and drop an intro um, and what you do there at the Federation. Yeah, my name's Ray Trejo. I live in Deming, New Mexico. That's a southwestern corner of the state. Um, I'm fortunate enough to work for the New Mexico Wildlife Federation as their southern outreach coordinator. So I do a host of things. Um, much of it um, requires that we take youth and outdoors hunting fishing uh, we write about it uh, it's mentorship program um, along with the other host of things so yeah well it's good to have you join in on this um well we were just kind of going over jesse's background a little bit so jesse i did read on the website you arrowed your first elk at age 15 in the gila um so you've been bow hunting quite a long time um I assume you're a well-rounded sportsman, but did you get out and elk hunt this year? Yeah, I sure did. Um, actually, currently recovering from it. I've got uh, three fractured ribs. I, I hired an outfitter, actually, to take me deep into the wilderness and had a little bit of a mule wreck. Um, landed me up in the hospital. But uh, it was a phenomenal hunt. Had a blast. You know, I'm fine. Everything's okay. It was just kind of precautionary stuff. But had a great day, a great time out there chasing chasing elk. I, I did not uh, bring an elk home for the freezer, unfortunately, uh, but it was phenomenal. Saw uh, great diversity of wildlife and got to spend time in my favorite place in the world, which is the Aldo Leopold Wilderness. And so it's kind of um, just seems really uh, a blessing to be able to work for an organization founded by the same person who created the wilderness I'm so fond of. That is so special. Well, the reason why we're bringing you guys on today is that I'm getting sucked into this vortex um, and I think, you know, I'm a guy of faith, so I think everything happens for a reason, but I ended up, I think you guys caught wind of maybe some of my social media posts or a couple of podcasts where I basically kind of put your state on blast a little bit. Um, I've been known to be a pretty transparent individual. Uh, I found that that's kind of like authenticity and keeping it real has been the key to my success in the hunting space. 
and I had a kind of a bad deal go down in New Mexico and I kind of got exposed to a little bit of what I would call the underbelly of some of the stuff down there. And I have a lot of love for the state of New Mexico. Uh, I've always put in for your draw ever since I started elk hunting. I have been able to draw two different tags and kill two different bulls. Um, and then this year I was not able to draw. And uh, so I went ahead and bought a landowner tag and uh, it was a unit wide and I've already said the unit, not because I wanted to put the unit on blast, but because I know people were going to be able to figure out anyways where I was. And um, somehow we got connected. And now I've done a podcast with the chapter of BHA down there. And we went over kind of what they're fighting for as far as they feel like there's a lot of privatization going on in your state with elk hunting. And they feel like a resource is possibly maybe being abused or in a way going away from the North American model of conservation and me trying to stay neutral and kind of play devil's advocate in our conversation. I, I really wasn't able to, I, I still pretty much sided with what they were saying, but I want to bring you guys on today to kind of talk about how the current environment and what's going on and help educate our listeners and see if there's any call to actions and see if we as hunters can stay united, not divided. Well, that's that's great, Dan. I appreciate that. And, and that's a huge uh, task trying to stay united when we're dealing with the kind of money that's at play here in the state of New Mexico and the amount of wealth that's being generated by the privatization of our public resource. And it's not just the elk tags. That's a huge part of it. And obviously, this is the Elk Shape podcast. I imagine that's what we'll focus on primarily. But it's it's river access. I mean, we have a case pending right now in the New Mexico State Supreme Court because we have wealthy landowners coming into New Mexico, buying private properties where public rivers run through the private properties. And they've created a system that allows them to legally shut off all access on those rivers. And, and that relates to elk hunting, too, because there's areas where I could access public lands using my alpaca raft forager. If I could just float down the Rio Chama, for example, to get to some areas that would otherwise be inaccessible. But uh, because there are barbed wire fences and no trespassing signs across that public waterway, uh, that access for those areas and, and my desire to pursue elk in those areas is completely shut off. And and that's not right. And that's what the New Mexico Wildlife Federation is working very hard to change. Okay, wow. So it is definitely disappointing to hear that, to be honest with you, because how cool is that from, and, and obviously my lens is a blue collar public land elk hunter, but my lens is, you know, we as public land elk hunters, we, especially when you get pretty into it, you find somewhere where you can use an alpaca raft and float down and get to some places that not, you can't just drive a truck or side by side to like you immediately get so excited. Cause you're like, man, these elk are going to be not messed with. I'm going to have the place to myself and, and you, it's exciting. And then, you know, it's hard to find that kind of stuff on e-scouting or hiking. And so I could see why, um, but you're saying like, you just can't get on the water or once you get to the, the land, it's like, it's fenced off where it shouldn't be. What exactly does that look like? 
Yeah, so the, the way it works, and I'll just mention the New Mexico state constitution says that the waters of the state are public, and that's the reason for the Supreme Court cases. We're challenging the constitutionality of a current game commission rule that allows a landowner to apply for something called a non-navigable certificate, and it basically says that they could certify a section of their waterway as non-navigable, which... Uh, doesn't make any sense, and I don't want to get too far into the weeds, and I've got to be careful anyway because we have pending litigation. But but what the the Constitution says, in my opinion, is that as long as I don't trespass across private property, long as I was able to put my raft in on public land, then I can float down that public waterway, even where it crosses private property, provided that I don't you know get out and trespass. And once through that section of private property, I re-enter public lands on on the bank of one or both sides of the river, then I could get out of the raft, set up my camp, have an unbelievable, amazing elk hunting experience on public land and harvest an elk, load them in a raft and float it out. Um, but I can't do that because when you hit the private land, you can't float through it to get to the other side because there's, it's blocked. Uh, there's no trespassing signs that were installed by the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish because the landowner received this certificate that allowed him to close public access. So I've never heard of this. I've never heard of a, such a thing or such a certificate in all my life. It's bogus. The whole it's completely bogus. But uh, there's a lot of money at stake again. It, it, a lot of this is going to come down to money, Dan. And I don't want it to come off like I'm attacking wealthy people. I mean, I. I appreciate people who've worked hard and who've built a significant amount of wealth and who have the ability to, to have nice things. What I don't agree with is their ability to buy a public resource that belongs to everybody, in turn, eliminating equitable access to our publicly owned natural resources. That's what I'm opposed to. So it's not against people being wealthy. It's not against people owning land. It's not against any of that. It's the fact that in North America, in the United States of America, one of the greatest things we have are public lands and public wildlife. But in New Mexico, we're getting more and more to a European model where if you're not wealthy, you're not going to be able to access the public resources that exist in this state. And, you know, I've got an 11 year old son at home. I want him to have the same type of opportunities I've had. As you mentioned in the introduction, I killed my first elk with a bow and arrow deep in the Gila wilderness when I was 15 years old. I want my son to be able to have those same kind of opportunities. And I'm not a wealthy person. I don't have the kind of money it would require to buy my way to the front of the line. And even if I did, I don't agree in the principle of it. It's, it's, it's simply wrong. And it's not the way that the North American model of wildlife conservation is designed to be implemented. And so the New Mexico Wildlife Federation has become very, very aggressive in our effort to fix these problems. Wow. Wow. That is incredible. Well, I, I don't have much to argue there. Um, what is the motive? And maybe we don't, maybe you can't speculate, but if I'm a wealthy landowner, let's just take the word wealthy out, but let's just say I, I'm a landowner and I've taken the steps to get a certificate that means that you guys can't float through on public water through my private land. What is my motive to keep the public out? Is, is there any way to speculate what their motive is behind that? 
well, I don't have to speculate. I can tell you for a fact what the motive is. It's it's to sell private fishing access. What you have on these some of these certified sections of water are fish feeders that are creating these big, giant, fat brown trout and rainbow trout and cutthroat trout. And you, you I could go on the water. It's not that I can't go. I just have to pay the, the landowner to be able to fish with one of his guides that he's partnered with. And then I can fish that water all day long, catching these giant officially fed monster fish, taking pictures for Instagram. If I can afford to do it, if I have the money to do that. Um, but the public, the local communities in Northern New Mexico, you know, our local land grant communities, for example, who have historically really enjoyed these public waterways. I've got testimonials from, from people from the Tierra Amarilla land grant, for example, who can tell stories about fishing this section of river with their grandfather when they were kids, but now they can't take their grandchildren on that same stretch of water to carry on the tradition. Uh, and unless you have a big you know, checkbook and are able to pay the private landowner to fish that property exclusively without being pestered by the the local peasants, um, then it's off limits. I mean, it, it, there's no secret about the motivation behind it. Okay, so the, he did monetize it, basically. He monetized public water because he owns dirt all around it, and uh, the fishing seems to be world-class. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, it, it, it does usually come down to money in this world. I mean, I'm 40. I don't know how you guys are, but it's not. it doesn't take you long to figure out. You just follow the money. And you can kind of figure things out. So on the elk hunting side of things, one thing that we discussed was the fact that these landowners get these tags and that the New Mexico Game and Fish almost goes out of their way and spends quite a bit of money to figure out who's going to get these tags, how many tags they're going to get. And it's kind of a weird convoluted system is kind of what I, the jest I was getting. But let's hear your guys' take on the E-plus program. Uh, because this is Elk Shape Podcast, and kind of how that works, how you guys think it's working, and how you'd like to see it start working, or the changes that need to maybe take place. Ray, do you want to start off on that? Yeah, um, you know, I'd like to say that E-plus is, is a lot like what we're dealing with currently with stream access. It's a privatization of, of the wildlife or fish. You know, elk in our state is... Um, it's a pretty popular animal and therefore um, being able to monetize it incentivizes the landowners and the brokers who, you know, outfitters who are allowed to purchase these. Uh, oftentimes, I, I believe like on the ranch that you were on, Dan, um, in unit nine, uh, that Floyd Lee ranch is, you know, obviously USO brokers those tags and um, you know sells them outright so you know the the simple fact of the matter is that the wildlife again does not belong to any private entity they belong to the public and that's the thing that we're trying to get people to understand um i can tell you that i've had conversations over and over and over with people and it takes within five minutes of explaining the e plus program to them and they just have no clue that it even exists it's really one of the best kept secrets in new mexico um, the landowners are given these authorizations to be able to put on the free market and as you know 
some of these tags are going for ten and fifteen thousand dollars a piece. So you know, money is uh, the motivation behind all of this. Um, the other thing that you know we often run into is the fact that well we don't run into it it is here and um it's an outfitter set aside i don't know if if you know about that but there's a portion of the elk tags in this state that are guaranteed to go to outfitters now you know i own a business jesse owns a business and nobody has ever given me anything you know if we make money it's because of the hustling that we do um we're not guaranteed anything. And that's another issue that we have uh, currently in this state that we're, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're not really fond of. So, you know, I don't know if that answered your question, Dan, but um, I do want to commend you guys. I listened to your podcast. I want to commend you for taking the high road, so to speak, when you were dealing with this. Um, I know how frustrating it, it can be. And I can tell you, being raised in this state all my life, literally, since I was eight years old, as far back as I can remember, my uncles taking me and my dad and having these same issues with people trying to privatize when it wasn't private, you know, putting up signage that was not correct, you know, making people pay that we didn't have Onyx back then. You know, all we relied on were maps. So, you know, they could always question and, and I can tell you that I am surprised at this point that there has not been a shooting somewhere over this same issue. And it's all because of the money. I hate to admit it, but my cameraman said, wow, somebody is going to get shot. Like people are going to mess with the wrong people. And it's going to end deadly. So the guys in New Mexico that messed with me messed with the wrong person. They didn't know that I had a decent following on Instagram. They didn't understand I had a guy paid running a high 4K camera with amazing audio pointing at them. And that I wasn't going to go silently with my tail between my legs. That I was going to stand up and say, I disagree. I've done my homework. I know this is state land. Let's call the game warden. You know, and and if you guys haven't heard that podcast, go back and listen to the Elk Cartel recap. Um, yeah. Dan is is that in our state, there's never been any consequences, and that's the whole point. I mean, we have landowners who continually do this, outfitters that continually do this, and there are no real consequences. We actually have a hunter harassment law. And to my knowledge, I only know of one person who that has ever been, you know, they've been written up for that, but they still continue in their business. I don't even know if that was a, I don't know if they had to pay a fine or write a letter, who knows, but that's, that's why it continues to happen. There's real, there's no real consequences. Well, circling and back to it's upsetting. It, it, I mean, it's so frustrating to be out there and have this occur to you. I mean, I've had this occur to me. I don't know how many times with my son sitting next to me, you know, and it gets heated and it just ruins the hunt. It ruins the whole day. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's actually why we left that 
we left elk to go hunt the side of the unit that had zero elk because I was happy to be hiking and making elk calls. And I know there wasn't that many elk there, but at least I wasn't running into folks trying to intimidate me or posture and get me to leave. And, and man, I've elk hunted long enough on public land to know that, you know, eventually you might have some sort of run in or altercation, but at the end of the day, if, if you can, if you can just get away from that, it's more enjoyable. Even if there's less elk, it's more enjoyable. So that's what we did, but we definitely, we got the fishing game involved. We had to. So I wanted to say the E plus program, the background on it, it's been around for generations. So you have that going against you guys right now. Like landowners have gotten tags for a long time, at least the authorizations, as you said, that's the right verbiage. And then if they get the authorization, depending on if they're in a primary or whatever, they can do whatever they want with those tags and they would be dumb not to sell them to a broker because then it's like, okay, I just got 50 tags because I own this much land. I'm going to sell them off to a broker. I'm going to get one check, wash my hands clean of it, um, and then I can maybe lease my land out or not, but that's going to help offset some of my expenses, my property tax or whatever. Uh, this is a great deal for me. What ends up happening is those E-plus tags go to a market that's not regulated. And I, I would say it's almost black, mar black market type stuff because I don't know how many times these tags get sold and resold and resold. And I don't know how many people buy the codes. Maybe they buy a code and it doesn't even work. I, I'm sure you'll know more about this than me, but it's a weird system. And it's a lot of elk tags, right? It's like, 13,000 of your 34,000 tags are going to the E-plus program. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And, and you know, the interesting thing, again, another, another big secret is when you talk to the average blue-collar hunter, they have no clue that there are upwards of 22,000 elk tags available for, for the public draw. But before they even get there, 13,000 of those are set aside for landowners, um, which essentially go to outfitters through brokers. And uh, I mean, imagine that, that what, it, you know, that's, that's not quite a half, but it's a lot of darn tags that are being given to, to the landowners, to the private landowners before we're in that, they, we're in that lottery system. So yeah, it, it, it definitely is a skewed system. Um, it's been going on for a long time. Um, you know, I, I, I can tell you that we have talked to uh, one gentleman in particular who has a has a lot of history on how this began and um, back in the 70s. And he was actually a lobbyist for the guides and outfitters. And he told us exactly how it happened. I mean, essentially, he he would walk into the game and fish department and tell them what was going to happen. And incidentally, um, you know, he, he got this system going and um, <laughs> there was a lot of, uh, I guess, pay to play, so to speak. But um, he's, he's an old man now. I think he's like 80 years old and this is one of his biggest regrets. And he told us that, and he would like nothing more than to fix this, system that privatizes um, the wildlife in our state. So your guys as an entity, what's your next steps to help um, not only educate 
the public on what's going on, but um, actionable steps the public can take alongside with you guys to help maybe at least maybe restructure, maybe reform some of this stuff that's going on, knowing that we have big money involved on the other side of the fence. Well, there's a number of things. I mean, my background's in education, so I, I believe in education, Dan. It's, it's very important to me. The problem that we have or have had for a long time is getting the public, blue-collar public hunter to understand and or listen. And that's why I reached out to you when I did. When I, when I heard what had happened to you, I thought, I know you're following, and I thought that this would be another means of being able to educate, you know, the New Mexican residents. Um, and, and, you know, they would have an idea of why there's not many tags available, why they haven't drawn a tag in five or eight years. I hear it every day, you know. Uh, many of them have given up on the system. Uh, generations, there's generations of kids that essentially, uh, because their fathers have lost interest, they, or grandparents or whatever, they've lost interest, they will never have that experience to go. So I, education is super important. And that, those are some of the steps that we're, we're working on. Um, I know that BHA is working on an education system. Um, I actually did that um, many years ago um, with the antelope system. They, they used to call it A+. That's another story. But, um, and, and it was working. We were getting lots of attention. I mean, lots of attention. I was doing road shows. Of, across the state and people were like what the heck we never knew and we would show them the data and how many tags were going here and how many were being brokered here and they and how many were set aside it just blew blew their minds but right now currently we are also working with um you know with some some of our folks at the state level trying to get them to understand that this is definitely an equity issue and it, I, I truly believe that um, when you can buy your way to the front of the line, Dan, that is absurd. There are people that go hunt Gila bulls every single year because they can buy a tag. Oh, without a doubt. And, you know, in my world where, oh boy, I'm going to be transparent. Like if you got a decent Instagram following, if you have platforms to leverage if you're on outdoor tv these outfitters know that if they get you to their outfit people are going to find out about it it's it's not hard for somebody in my position to get in on these hunts and to literally it'll cost me nothing um damn near almost pay me to come hunt your heel attack because they know the exposure they're going to get now i don't have as big a reach as many but i'm just saying um, there's people that'll pay and there's people with influence. And then these normal blue collar guys see these big bulls getting killed year after year by the same guys. And they think, you know, it kind of, the bigger issue is it kind of makes elk hunting not realistic for normal people. They don't understand that there isn't a six point behind every tree and that it is, there's a reason why it's 10% success rate on public land for normal people. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I, I jumped on here is just like, okay, I'm a public land guy. I'm all about elk meat in the freezer, and I got to be a breath of fresh air to show people, hey, no, 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 no. Elk hunting is really hard, 
and celebrate that spike bull you killed if it's legal or that four-point rag bull if it's legal. Like, getting an elk is really cool on public land. And now with social media, it's almost like it's got to be a six-point or people aren't going to post a picture of their hard-earned success. And so, yeah, you can hunt the Gila every year. Ray, I could probably hunt the Gila every year. I could leverage platforms. I could get my checkbook out. And I could do it year after year, and I could pay, and I could flex my influence to get to the front of the line. And I just don't like that. I'm with you guys. I don't like that. So where do we go from here? Like, what actual steps as a, from the Federation side? Like, what are you guys J- – Jesse, you're back on. Like, what are we going to do going forward? How are you guys going to try to inform politicians of your state that probably aren't even hunters, probably don't really care too much about your concerns? Well, Dan, what I what I what I believe is that we have strength in numbers. And as Ray mentioned earlier in the discussion, the majority of people in New Mexico don't even understand exactly how the system works. And and to a large degree, I think the system was designed like that. It's very complicated. Um, there, there's so many different nuances. It's a very complicated system full of intricacies and, and details that are widely misunderstood by the public. So we need to educate the public, first of all, about what the issues are and why those issues are problematic. And I I really appreciate you allowing us this opportunity to help do that through your platform and through your reach. Uh, You mentioned earlier you were 40 years old. Well, I'm 41. I was born in 1980. The, The system that provides individual landowners to sell public resources to the highest bidder existed when I, in New Mexico when I was born. So for someone like me that's 41 years old, it's been like this my entire life. So it becomes challenging to recognize the problem, right? I mean, if, if that's what you've always known, then how do you know that's not the way it should be? So step one, we have to educate people. As we mentioned earlier, there's a ton of money at play here. But what we have, while we don't have those financial resources, we have numbers in people. We had a record year for applicants in New Mexico this past year, somewhere in the neighborhood of 70,000 more applications in, in this last gross season than the prior one. So we have a lot of people in New Mexico who are hunters. We have a lot of people in New Mexico who are interested in hunting. They need to be educated about the, the issues that exist within our system that prevent equitable access to our natural resources, and then we can become vocal, vocal with our elected officials, vocal with our appointed officials, vocal with the New Mexico State Game Commission. And, and one thing I'd like to say, Dan, and I, you know, you mentioned earlier, you bought a unit-wide elk tag. You paid a private landowner to buy a tag that was essentially stolen from someone who otherwise would have an opportunity to get that tag in the public draw. And I don't fault you for that at all. And I don't fault the landowner who sold it either. I'm not against the landowners. I'm not against the outfitters. I'm not against the people who are participating. I'm against the system. The system is broken, and I don't personally attack people for for taking full advantage of the system that's in place. I think that's important that you say that. I think people probably could understand that. Um, I certainly do, even though, yeah, I bought, I utilized the system just to add one more elk hunt to my arsenal in September. One thing I talked about with the BHA squad was like, okay, landowners, there are ways for you to monetize your land like they do on the fishing side of things without getting the tags. Like without having tags in hand to sell to a broker, you could lease your land. Um, sure. 
or you could charge trespass fees. There are um, several ways to still monetize being a landowner, which I would if I was a landowner. I would want to offset my property taxes or whatever. Do you guys agree? Like there are other opportunities for landowners to monetize besides just receiving authorizations and getting allotment of tags to sell? Oh, absolutely, Dan, 100%. I mean, I, I, I'll i be the first to mention that private landowners in the state of New Mexico and all across the West are critical for robust wildlife populations on both public and private land. You know, this wildlife generally utilizes private and public land throughout different times of the year, or different weather conditions when we're seeing extended droughts. Those, the elk will move down into riparian areas, into, you know, river corridors or uh, where ranchers have developed water infrastructure in the form of guzzler tanks or trick tanks or dirt tanks or whatever. And so landowners, private landowners are providing critical wildlife habitat. And I think they should be rewarded for that. And I think they should sell what they own, which is access to the private land. So trespass fees, things like that are, are incredibly valuable tools that landowners can use to incentivize uh, their you know, incentivize their commitment to being good stewards of the land and, and for uh, putting up with wildlife. Because let's face it, wildlife can be destructive. They can damage crops. They can damage fences. I recognize all of that. And I, uh, and I, I want to see landowners benefit from providing that critical habitat. But the way they do that is not by selling something that belongs to the public, not by selling a, a public resource. I mean, um, the, the not, there's a lot of nonprofit organizations. It's really frustrating for me as a New Mexican to see this. There's a lot of nonprofit organizations who raffle hunting trips in New Mexico to raise money all across the country. And I won't mention any organizations by name, but as a New Mexican, it's frustrating when you're seeing organizations from all kinds of states always raffling or auctioning New Mexico hunts. And the reason they can do that is because the tag is guaranteed. They've been donated one of these unit-wide landowner tags or maybe a ranch-only tag or whatever it is. But that would be like me wanting to help the Cancer Society. So I go down to the New Mexico State Roundhouse, our state capital, and take a million-dollar painting off of the wall and donate it to the to the cancer society i mean it's a great cause just like conservation groups around the country are doing great work with the money that, that they're making with some of these donated tags but i can't go to the state capitol and take a painting off the wall that belongs to the general public and donate it for a great cause right so right. It, it's really the same thing nor okay. jesse can we take our tag that we got and put it on the free market and sell <laughs> Right, which which is obviously good. You know, you're right, right? We can't do that and shouldn't be able to, and nor should any individual be able to sell something that they don't own. I mean, it's it's um to me it's just fundamentally wrong and it's not rocket science. It's it's pretty simple. And it it seems to me that the system's been in place for so long that so few people recognize that it could be changed. And and that's one of the challenges, Dan, is we were talking about earlier, what can be done, we have to give people a glimmer of hope that, that we can actually change this. It's just been, it's been in place for so long that um, I think that that hope has been lost. And um, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation is doing everything we can to, to try to bring it back. And what we hear all the time is that, well, there's no other way to do it. This is how it has to be done. But no other state does it this way. 
Now, Montana's trying. If you're following what's going on in Montana, they are going down a very, very dangerous path and um, more and more trying to mimic what we're doing here in New Mexico. And, and my heart really goes out to the public land hunters in Montana because they're, they're treading dangerous water right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so guys, I'm going to get two questions to you. The first one's going to be, all right, I'm going to give you all the resources. What steps would you take to fix the problem? But before we get that, like, let's talk about the slippery slope in Montana uh, as well as it parallels New Mexico. Like, why do these landowners, why do these outfitters get such a large voice? Why do they, what they have, their opinions, why does it have so much weight behind it? wherein you have clearly more DIYers, more residents that just want to go hunt out their back door, more people like me want to drive down and hunt these elk, and I don't want to employ the services of an outfitter. Now, if I did want to employ an outfitter, I could vet through using the internet, picking up the phone, and networking. I can figure out real quick who to hire. Because the cream rises to the top. I don't like welfare for outfitters. Ray mentioned it earlier. 10%. So 2,200 elk tags set aside if you hire an outfitter. To me, that is welfare. That is welfare for an outfit. When I own my business, I don't want the government to set aside customers for me that they have to come through me i'll get my own damn customers because i will hustle like ray said and i will work hard and i'll do a damn good job um so why do these outfitters and landowners have such a large voice well uh dan and i sound like a broken record but it, it really does come back to money but it also come back to unity at the start of the conversation you said we as hunters need to remain united and, and I believe that 100% to be true. We have to stay united, but it's super difficult to do. But the landowners and the outfitters have, have done a really good job of uniting because most of these landowners who are selling these unit-wide tags uh, or, or ranch-only tags for that matter have you know contracts, agreements with outfitters so that the, the landowner lobby – and, you know, the cattle growers and the, the landowners and the outfitters are all very unified and they show up. That's the big difference. You know, though, 10% of our tags go to just over 200 outfitters. Meanwhile, 6% of our tags have to be distributed amongst every single person on the planet who applies and does not reside in the state of New Mexico. But when we bring that issue up at a legislative committee hearing, or at a game commission meeting, what we see are the same 20 or 30 committed public land hunters show up and you see every single one of the 200 outfitters show up because their livelihood is tied to it because there's a financial benefit to it. Uh, and, and that's why they're so powerful is because they show up. And as you just, you know, we talked earlier in the, in the discussion about my recent elk hunt, I hired an outfitter a phenomenal outfitter. I'd hire him again. You know, I don't have pack mules and I wanted to be super deep in the wilderness. So I hired an outfitter to provide drop camp services, you know, for, for my hunt. And, and I couldn't have been more happy with the services that were provided. Um, but I didn't, I didn't use the fact that I hired that outfitter to draw the tag. I drew the tag first. And then, as you said, did my research to find out who I wanted to employ to help me and, and support me on, on that hunt. Uh, but the outfitters, the landowners, I mean, they, they show up and they have a lot of influence because they re remain united 
And that's what we have to figure out how to do as public land hunters. Roger that. Well, that's where I come in. I'm going to use my little blue collar voice to get these guys listening. You know, each episode gets 60, 70,000 downloads. So if you're listening to this, we are going to tell you today what you can do. And it doesn't matter if you've never hunted New Mexico or if you're a non-resident and you're like, whatever, like we need to start setting precedents. And this state right here that you guys live in could be the first to set a precedent to showcase what it means for average elk hunters to unite and stand up for what's right. And literally all we're trying to do, correct me if I'm wrong, is we're trying to find like follow the North American model of conservation. Aldo Leupold, if he was alive today, would he be happy with the current situation that you guys are in in New Mexico? Absolutely not. I mean, it, 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 he would be appalled by it. it he's, he's rolling in his grave right now. It's also important to mention that Aldo Leopold said the future of, of wildlife is, the, is conservation on private lands. I mean, Aldo Leopold recognized the importance of private lands, and so does the New Mexico Wildlife Federation. But that doesn't make this system okay. We can have a fair and equitable system, and we can also have fantastic landowners who do an unbelievable job of providing wildlife habitat and being excellent stewards of the land. This privatization thing, Dan, it's it's like a cancer, and it's going to spread across this country. And so what I want to do today is provide a cautionary tale to people all across the country, regardless of what state you live in, especially in the West, though, so that that they can prevent this type of thing from spreading into their state. This is a cancer that needs to be cut out. And, you know, I, I... I don't want to get too far into the weeds, and I know this is an elk-shaped podcast, but are you familiar, Dan, with how the the bighorn sheep hunts are run in New Mexico for both desert bighorns and Rocky Mountain bighorns? Because I think it illustrates how um, permeating this issue is when it comes to the, the management of our wild animals in this state. The only thing I know is that I've been putting in for some like 20 years, and New Mexico takes over $3,000 cash up front. I believe still. And then I go into a draw and I'm sure there's a cap as to how many can go towards non-resident schmucks like me. But at the end of the day, there's no points involved, which is kind of an incentive for me to put in for your state. So there's no weighted like preference. It's purely just a pretty random type of draw where I have as good a chance to hunt and I've been eyeballing the Pecos Wilderness for years to hunt there. But uh, that's all I know about your draw. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly exp- explain a little something that almost nobody realizes about the way our bighorn sheep hunts here in New Mexico are managed. As you stated, we don't have any type of point system, no preference points, no bonus points. And the New Mexico Wildlife Federation would fight tooth and nail if ever the state tried to implement a point system. It's it, that those don't work. And I won't get into the reasons why your listeners know that already. But just like you mentioned, all of our hunts, every hunt code that exists. So the hunt, you know, if you applied for an elk hunt, every hunt code that you apply for, 84% of the tags go to residents. 10% to the outfitters, 6% to the non-residents who are not required to hire an outfitter. That's true for every hunt code across the state. With every other species, a hunt code is a species, a unit, and a set of dates. So if you were applying for a first season 16B Gila elk tag, 
your hunt code would be elk dash two dash three other numbers. And that would indicate the species you're hunting, the time frame you're allowed to hunt, okay, and the unit that you're hunting in. But with bighorn sheep, because so many of the units, so many of the hunt codes would be five tags or four tags or three tags, all of them would go to residents, right? Because to get to 84%, there's not enough tags to give one to the outfitters or to give one to the non-residents. So residents would see the majority of those tags. But what the New Mexico Department of Game and Fish does is takes all the bighorn sheep hunts and, and puts them under one hunt code. So when you apply for bighorn sheep in our, in our online system, you'll realize it's a very different uh, method of application than for any other species in the state because you have multiple different units, multiple different series of dates, all lumped together under one hunt code. The reason they do that is so that there are guaranteed tags set aside for the outfitters. Right. That makes sense. And they, they've completely violated the definition of a hunt code. Well, and and the statute that was created to, that we worked on, Jesse, uh, they have just ignored that. Um, and, and Dan, going back to the North American model of wildlife conservation, obviously the commercialization of wildlife um, is, is one of the things prohibited in the seven tenants or the seven sisters of the model. Another thing, though, that's really important is that wildlife should be managed by science. Well, in New Mexico, and, and I'll just, well, for pronghorn and for mule deer, landowners can sell unlimited authorizations for any price to the highest bidder for people to hunt pronghorn and mule deer on their private land. There's no limit to the number they can sell. And when it comes to elk, the same thing exists in the elk zone that's considered the secondary zone. So if it's not prime elk habitat, according to the department, then a private landowner can sell any number of elk tags for their private land. And, and I have to wonder, how is that science-based wildlife management when you allow a landowner to sell unlimited tags for the resource? So in the podcasting world, I believe they call this a mid-roll advertisement. Anyways, I'm interrupting the podcast to hopefully have your attention to let you know these companies support Elk Shape and make this thing possible. Shout out to Buck Knives and Post Falls, Idaho, Spy Point USA. These trail cameras are affordable and they have the blue collar people in mind. They have both cellular and non-cellular trail cameras, great price points, and they work and they will enhance your game. Numa Outdoors with their 2021 lineup live. Check them out at numaoutdoors.com. Discount code Elkshape20. Take 20% off. Matthews Archery out of Sparta, Wisconsin. My favorite bow in hand. Best shooting. Most dependable. Awesome technology. Solid engineering. Go shoot the new bow at your local dealer. Black Rifle Coffee Company out of Salt Lake City, Utah. Veteran owned. They give a lot back to veterans. They're pro 2A. They're pro hunting, and they make damn good coffee. Discount code Elkshape, 15% off. Kafaro International, I rock the hoodlum. I rock the 22 mag. Check it out at kafarointernational.net. Crispy USA, I rock the Colorados, the Nevadas. See for yourself, no break-in period. Made in Italy, world-class craftsmanship. Next time you're doing some boot shopping, be sure to check out Crispy USA. Vortex, Optics Vortex Nation, Vortex Wear. Discount code is Elkshape, 20% off any apparel. Check out their UHDs, their Razor 4000, their spotters, and they have a lot of things when it comes to rifles that I don't know much about. 
Vortex Optics, veteran known out of Wisconsin. Love this company, longest standing partnership. Be sure to support Vortex with their VIP warranty, transferable, lifetime. You break it, they fix it. Wilderness Athlete, I discovered them in 2006. One of the best supplement companies out there, not a marketing company. Use the discount code ELKSHAPE30 on your first purchase and save 30%. Last but not least, if you're buying any gear, go to blackovis.com. Be sure to enter ELKSHAPE at checkout and get 10% off your purchase. Back to the podcast. I'm speechless. Now, I did know that about antelope. I did um, because I know of an outfitter who can sell as many, uh, basically get as many antelope tags as he needs from the landowner that he leases his property from. But I didn't know that about elk in an area that wasn't considered a primary. Uh, It is, that is a dichotomy if you're saying that is science. Like I, I would hard, that seems very hard to believe that that's science driven. It's 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 a lack of um, responsibility on the on the part of the Department of Game and Fish, who's supposed to be managing for robust and sustainable wildlife populations across the state for the benefit of all New Mexicans. Well, they can't claim that they're doing that if they're allowing unlimited sales for tags to harvest the resource in the secondary zone. The department defines it as a zone where no specific elk management goals are set and licenses are available over the counter for private land in unlimited number. But what's interesting is like who decides what's prime elk habitat? I think everybody on this call recognizes that that elk were a grassland species, right? I mean, elk are prairie animals. They were driven into the mountains because of, you know, urban sprawl, human population, human development. But in Northeast New Mexico, where we have phenomenal grasslands habitat, elk are repopulating this area as they naturally should. I mean, that's their original habitat. So who is the Department of Game and Fish to say, oh, well, that's not prime elk habitat. Well, if it's not prime elk habitat, why is it becoming so populated by elk? I mean, the elk seem to think it's prime habitat. That's why they're there. And why should a private landowner have the ability to sell unlimited opportunities for the highest dollar possible, opposed to putting those tags in the public draw, and again, allowing equitable access to our public resource. Yes. The the interesting thing is, and and we haven't talked about this, and I don't know if you're aware of it, but we call it the Jennings Law, because it was created by a senator um, back in the day, but that, you know, that allows a landowner who um who's having issues with let's say too many elk on their alfalfa field um, it gives them the ability to go ahead and shoot elk on their land and then pick up the phone and call the game department and say look i just you know took out 20 uh elk or antelope or whatever um because they were on my alfalfa field that happens that happened the other day on a chili field over here where I live, you know, there was three or four does that were shot and just left to lay. Um, they have the right to do that as, as landowners. What? Yeah. Landowners, Dan can kill any wildlife that comes on their private property. If legally, if that wildlife is deemed to be a threat to their public property, I mean, to their private property, I'm sorry. And private property could be defined as native prairie grass. So you could do a quick Google search, just Google 39 pronghorn 
killed in Northeast New Mexico. And what you're going to find is a story of a rancher who got fed up with the Department of Game and Fish. And he and his son went out on ATVs using 12 gauge shotguns with birdshot and shot 39 pronghorn antelope. They corralled them into the corner of a fence and shot 39 antelope, most of them not killing them not lethals, they were just maimed because they're using 12 gauge with birdshot. So the Department of Game and Fish has to come out and then essentially euthanize those animals. But that was perfectly legal. There, there was no law broken in that. And so what's happened historically, what's happened in the past is that landowners, when they were frustrated with the Department of Game and Fish, let's just say I'm a landowner and I, the department gives me five unit wide elk tags. And I say, well, I want six or I want seven or I want 10. And the department says, well, the population doesn't you know justify that I, I can't give you that many we did flyovers we did population estimates you get five tags well that night a herd of 20 elk feed into my alfalfa field so i'd go out and i shoot all of those elk and then i can call the department and say hey you got 20 dead elk here you need to come clean up and then when the department shows up i tell the department now wouldn't it have made more sense to just give me two more of those unit wide tags how does this affect your population so it was a it was a system that allowed for a landowner to blackmail the Department of Game and Fish into issuing them more tags. In response to that, the Department of Game and Fish recently changed the rule so that if you actually utilize Jennings Law to, to kill wildlife that's on your private property, then you become ineligible to participate in E-plus for three years. You have to sit out of the program for three years. Well, there's a lawsuit pending right now in Good the New Lord. Mexico Department of Game and Fish there's a lawsuit pending right now because a landowner in the Gila region, I won't say his name, but you can Google it. Uh, a landowner in the Gila region didn't realize they changed the rule. So when some elk came in his property, he killed him. And he was allowed to do that because of Jennings law. But now he didn't, he was not issued any, any elk tags for this last season because he'd, he'd used the Jennings law. And he didn't know that that was going to disqualify him. So now he filed a lawsuit against the department uh, because they're not giving him elk tags and the elk are damaging his private property. I mean, that's how, that's how broken our system is here. So the ultimate, it sounds like the fish and game department from my lens is understaffed. They don't have the right, the proper resources and they haven't drawn a line in the sand and flexed hard enough on these landowners. They're just, they're, they're passive. They're not intimidating. They're not, they don't have an authority. They haven't set a precedent. They can be walked on that to me. That's kind of what it sounds like. Well, well, a lot of that's true, Dan. And, um, they're very under-resourced. There's no question. They're an enterprise agency. They don't get general appropriations. It's all hunting and fishing license dollars and, you know, federal match from Pittman Robertson, Dingle Johnson that supports the department. We haven't had a license fee increase in the state since 2005. Jeez. The bill passed in 2005, went into effect 2006. So if you look at the cost of a pickup truck in 2005 compared to today, there's a drastic difference. If you look at salaries and benefits and uniforms and everything else, it's a crazy difference. So the department is certainly under-resourced, but I'll tell you the foundation of the problem. The foundation of the problem in New Mexico is that New Mexico state game commissioners can be removed by the governor without cause. That's the oh. number one issue facing our state today. So at the beginning of the call, we, we were talking about the stream access issue. Yep. We had we had a chair of the game commission, Joanna Prukop, the best, most qualified chair of any game commission in the country, I would say, 
phenomenal resume, unbelievable leader in the, in the conservation arena. Joanna took a stand on stream access. She recognized that our claim that the rule that allows landowners to privatize sections of public waters was unconstitutional. And she made it known that she was she was opening up that discussion. She was going to have that conversation because uh, she saw the flaws in the system. Well, very, very wealthy landowners who have those certificates contributed ridiculous amounts of money to the governor. So we filed an inspection of public records request okay, to see. I mean, I'm not I'm not speculating on this. We have data. We have documentation. But immediately after Joanna made it known that she was going to take on the stream access case, she was removed from the commission. How convenient. <laughs> yes. So now we have a, a, a new chair who's a you know, very, very nice person. And, and I work with her well, but they are absolutely not going to address the stream access issue. But it didn't matter because we we took we went a different avenue. We we went you know we took it down instead of the executive branch of government. We've now moved into the judicial branch. But the fact that that commissioners can be removed by the governor without cause is the biggest problem in the state because the governor controls wildlife management, and the governor's receiving significant donations from wealthy people all across the state. When the game commission was established, it was an act prompted by the New Mexico Wildlife Federation to create the Game Commission. The purpose, obviously, to create a buffer between politics and wildlife management. That way, wildlife management could be based in science, not based on, you know, political wins. But as long as commissioners can be removed without cause, the Game Commission is an ineffective buffer, and that's something that needs to change. It's still political. And as you said, Dan, just follow the money. And essentially, that's where we're at right now. The Game Commission um, essentially does not have much power. Um, so the, the other thing, too, and I know we're moving kind of fast here, but I want to throw this in here. I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Dan, and, and or your listeners, but landowners, we've seen landowners can add to the value of their property by advertising the amount of elk tags that they receive. Oh yeah. hundred so, <laughs> percent for the real estate market, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like me, you know, adding the value to my property because I have 200 quail that come and roost every evening in my trees. Right. It's like, how, how is that even possible? But they do it. And again, how is that even possible because that wildlife does not belong to them but essentially it does because they have they're guaranteed a number of tags every year so so dan if you if if you would allow me to i'm just going to read a real estate listing that i've got pulled up here this is stromey realty s-t-r-o-m-e-i this is a a listing um I don't know the year. I don't, I don't know if it's recent or not recent but this is what it says santa casia new mexico 43 plus acres okay and i'm looking at the pictures and everything right now on my cell phone i pulled this real estate listing off the internet 43 plus acres includes 15 unit wide either sex elk tags for unit 13 nicely established farm with excellent improvements and then it goes on and on one million dollars 43 plus acres includes 15 unit wide either sex elk tags i can't understand that I mean, 15 times, 15 times 10 is a, you just added $150,000 um, 
to the was it 15 tags jesse that's what the i mean i i i'm reading a real estate listing this is an this is an actual real estate listing i don't know if the realtor has done their due diligence if all the information is accurate you know i don't want to make any i'm just all i all i have is the listing um but what so i can tell you so is, excuse me jesse is that your payment is being made by the public wildlife <laughs> that's a yeah, reoccurring it, too that's an yeah, annual reoccurring, reoccurring revenue stream so here's two things about that that i'll mention one of them santa Casia, that's where in 2019 a rancher shot seven elk uh in an alfalfa field then they were running around with their intestines hanging out a jaw was blown off of one of them a leg you know hanging off of the other one and uh i know the game warden who was you know, sent out to go put the, all of those animals down. And that landowner did that using Jennings law. Uh, it was discussed in a game commission meeting shortly after it happened. But here's what's interesting now. And, and this is where it gets to be again, Dan, so challenging to change. When you have a real estate agent, now I was a licensed realtor for nine years in this state, I think. When you have a real estate agent making this type of claim and advertisement in a real estate listing, so someone's going to spend a million dollars and buy that property. What happens when the next year the New Mexico Wildlife Federation shows up the state legislature and says we need to eliminate this system of unit-wide elk tags? Well, now the person who just spent a million dollars on 43 acres, and I'll tell you right now, that's, that's not in line with what 43 acres in that region of the state should sell for. No. But the elk tags, you know, if you're making $150,000 a year on elk tags, your payment's covered. But but if someone purchases that property because of that listing and because of those elk tags, imagine uh, imagine their reaction when I show up at the state legislature and say, we're going to fix that. Yeah, it's not going to be received well, bro. They're, they're, they might be writing your governor a big check, Grissom or whatever, whoever's your governor now, because uh, they can they handle the appointees. And yeah, it's corrupt. OK, so it is corrupt. It is nothing new. And it's like. The thing that BHA guy said uh, that I that resounded to me is like, obviously, I'm pretty conservative guy. Um, you can check my voting history. Uh, I don't like big government. I don't like the government involved very much at all. I believe that we as the people are the ones that should make stuff happen. Um, I don't mind government. I just don't think I don't like big government. And it seems like your system is just chocked full of lots of regulation and government and just we know the private sector knows how to handle business and then you got your guys's just conglomerate cock blocking elk hunting and doing its own thing in my in, from my angle oh, you're right about that dan and, and it's important to note that this is a nonpartisan issue we have a you know we, we have a democrat governor right now before that we had a republican governor and before that we had a democrat governor and before you know I, we just flip-flop we're like a pendulum in this state generally but it makes no difference you know what color is on the voting ticket of whoever's sitting in the governor here because this system's been going on since the 1970s and nobody's fixed it so it's it doesn't matter republican or democrat but it is ironic to, to see that some of the most conservative people in this state are people who are a, claim to be against social programs against widespread welfare against all of these handouts but those same conservative people are the ones who are being handed public resources to be sold to the highest bidder and 
there, there's an interesting thing here, and you might have talked about it in the last podcast with BHA, I'm not sure, but we have an anti-donation clause in this state that doesn't allow a public resource to be given to a private person without there being reciprocal benefit. So when, when landowners claim that these tags are necessary to compensate them, okay, for damages done by wildlife. So these tags are, are compensation. And I said tags, I should be calling these authorizations because when you go to the Department of Game and Fish and say, hey, how can you possibly be compensating these landowners that's a violation of the anti-donation clause. The response is we're not compensating it because as you saw when you bought a tag, you didn't actually buy the tag from the landowner. What you bought was... I think we lost him. Yeah, we lost him. Maybe he'll come back on here in a second. He was about to spit fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So so the anti-donation uh, you know, law we have, and the example I use, because I worked in education for a long time, it's, it, it's like... You know, I work for for the the state of New Mexico, and I was issued a computer to do you know whatever. So, but you know, at the end of the year, uh, I take this computer and I sell it outright. You can't do that, and that's no. essentially what the game and fish department are are, are allowing to happen. Even though they're not, you know, you went and bought a tag directly from the game and fish, not the landowner, right? Yeah. So that's how essentially they're looking at getting away from the anti-donation uh, law, which, you know, it's smoke and mirrors. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, I do want, uh, hopefully Jesse can make it back on, um, call to actions. Let's say we got some listeners that are pretty fired up. They Maybe they're like me and they just, they want to do their part to try to help New Mexico not privatize 13,000 elk tags. You know what I mean? Like, what can we do as just non-residents or even residents in New Mexico listening to this podcast that kind of had their eyes opened up today? I think they need to, to get involved. And by that, I mean, get with your conservation groups. You know, the New Mexico Wildlife Federation, we put out a lot of information. Um, get involved. Uh, become a member. Um, BHA, this New Mexico BHA, do... You know, these are these are organizations that are working for you, um, the general public. Ed educate yourself. Um, that's what I'm asking uh, that needs to happen right now. Currently in the state of New Mexico um, and, and non-residents can also do this. Go to the attorney general's website, the AG's website and talk to them, complain about this very subject. He needs to hear it, and it, it's real easy to get there. I wish I had the website before me, but go to the New Mexico Attorney General's website, and there's a place where you can complain about it. Well, you'll have to send me some links that I can supply in my show notes to arm people that want to take some actions. Um, I'm not sure if Jesse's going to make it back on here, but I enjoyed having him. Ray, you guys are very relatable. You guys aren't, you guys don't seem vindictive. You don't seem like you're out to get anyone. It seems like you guys are just trying to spread the good word that maybe the system here isn't the best system. And just because it's been around for multiple decades doesn't mean it's the best solution. Um, and so I think it's important that we at least talk about it and see where we can go from here. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the thing is, Dan, is that, you know, they continue to, 
think that we are against you know private landowners and and as jesse said that's not what we're about you know uh guides and outfitters there's very very reputable outfitters out there you know anytime we bring this subject out out they automatically think that we're anti outfitter and that's not the case for me personally um as i've said before um i don't believe that anybody should be guaranteed anything when you're in business i completely uh well without a doubt know that the good outfitters will continue to get the clients that they need what this did was open up a a, a a jar of anybody who wants to become an outfitter and possibly be guaranteed tags could do it good or bad yeah i don't i i can't argue with that and i know that there's some damn good outfitters in new mexico and man do they work hard probably don't even get compensated nearly what they i mean they operate out of passion and they love it and and i and i tip my hat that's a great way to make a living and in a hard way and respect, man, I recognize, you recognize that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's funny because some of the outfitters that, you know, Jesse and I have both talked to don't agree with this system. They do not agree with the system, but it is what it is and they're not gonna go against that at this point. Yeah, definitely. Well, I appreciate your time, Ray. Folks listening, check out the show notes on this episode specifically. Um, I would love, to get a landowner on this podcast and hear from them. If you know of anyone that's willing to come on, Ray, get me connected because I'd love to hear their side of the story as well. Um, and it's okay to disagree. It's okay to have different ideas, but it, I mean, ultimately I'm going to go back to what I said at the beginning of this podcast is like, regardless of how you hunt, whether you're a blue collar public land guy or you're somebody who, can afford a landowner tag and or hire an outfitter and hunt the Gila year in and year out. You're still a hunter and I still want to be on the same team as you. Don't get it twisted. But some of this stuff we talked about today seems like we have a system in place that is pretty broken and maybe there's something we can do about it. Yeah, let's hope so. Cool. Thanks for your time, Ray. And if you talk to Jesse, tell him thanks for his time and uh, we'll catch you guys maybe down the road and, and see, check in and see how things are going. Right on. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate you. Appreciate your, your podcast. Enjoy listening to them. All right. Thanks, Ray. Nice talking to you, bro. You bet. Bye-bye. All right, guys. So I think Jesse had some internet problems or whatever. I think he came on and off a couple times in there. I wanted to hear from him one more time, but he definitely articulates really well. And the guy hired an outfitter this year after drawing a tag. So I think your actions speak louder than words. I don't think he's anti-outfitters. I know I certainly am not. Ray, great guy as well. Just getting those guys and getting you informed. Um, we've heard now two different angles that want to fix this system in New Mexico. I live in Washington State. I'm just a diehard elk hunter. I want elk hunting to just to be around and I want it to be done right. And I'm not sure if it is being done right in New Mexico. But if you're a landowner and you get landowner tags and you've hated this podcast and maybe the other one I did and you want to jump on with me, elkshape at gmail.com. I would love to hear your side. I, I'm not trying to stay neutral in this instance. I'm leaning more towards I'd like to see this system like have some, some reform. 
some reconstruction. I hate it when you can pay to get to the front of the line. That kind of stuff, that, does, that stuff is just not my favorite. But I'm willing to hear and upgrade, like, and listen and hear other sides. And that's something that this country has kind of gotten away from. Like, if you disagree with somebody, the conversation just ends. And I don't believe in that. I feel like just because you have different point of views, like, it's still important to talk and hear everyone's side and, and maybe find some middle ground. I'm all about that. But regardless, appreciate you guys' support. You have a lot of options when it comes to podcasts. Thanks for choosing ours. And keep coming back because we'll keep bringing on more different angles, different things as it pertains to creating the best version of yourself, leveraging elk hunting, leveraging any type of hunting to create more discipline and to live the life you've always wanted and to keep your priorities straight with faith and family and hard work, delayed gratification, separations in the preparation. We'll catch you on the next one.